Good morning, Village Church. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be back up here teaching. We got our Village Youth students here as well. Welcome. Yes. Uh, it's the first Sunday. We're excited. We love first Sundays. We got brunch coming up later. The whole building smells like potatoes. Uh, it's just really the best time to be alive, best time to preach. Uh, I feel good. I hope you feel good. We are in Acts chapter 20. We're cruising along and uh, we're headed to the finish line here in the next couple months. This morning we're going to see Paul is headed back to Jerusalem. There's a few more interruptions and changes of plans, but the chapter leads us to really this incredible uh, message from Paul to the Ephesian leaders. And we're going to get a full chapter today. We're going to cruise through some of the, the details of travel stuff more quickly, and then we'll stop in a few places to really break it down in detail. So we got a lot of work to do, so we're going to get to work. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to, to that with us. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 1. It says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Potter the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secondus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. So the events of chapter 20 likely stretch out from around A.D. 54 to A.D. 57. The Roman emperor at the time is Nero. The Christian church is spreading all throughout the Mediterranean. Gas prices are very low. A lot of good things, a lot of good things happening. Paul is continuing his third missionary journey, and the next time he goes on a journey, it will be as a prisoner to Rome. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. He's bringing the offering that was raised by the churches for the Jerusalem church, particularly for the poor there. And you can see here in verse 3 that once again, he's always in danger of being arrested or killed. We also see here in verse 3, it says, just a brief statement, he spent three months in Corinth. This is a tiny little statement in our Bibles that actually has huge historical significance. What did Paul do during those three months in Corinth? We studied this in our men's Bible study. This was when he wrote the letter to the Roman church, what we call the Book of Romans. I grabbed a map. Some people like maps. And this is a map of Paul's third missionary journey. And probably can't see really well there, but if you're like watching online, you probably see really good. You should have stayed home, okay? So... Lots of stuff, lots of places. We're heading back, okay? And we got some good events this morning. We see a lot of names here already right at the beginning. These would be travel companions of Paul for this part of the journey, but likely they represented the churches throughout the Roman provinces of Macedonia, Asia, Galatia. And these guys were likely representing each church and their offering that was headed to Jerusalem. You gotta do this like old school, right? You gotta bring the gold with you. You gotta bring it. You can't just have like armored Brinks trucks. You can't like use a Peter's Bitcoin wallet and just transfer the money with a QR code. You got to like strap on your, your sandals and you got to get the coins from here to there and you got to stay alive. And so look at verse 7. On the first day of the week, 
when we were gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. So Eutychus is a young man, likely around 10, 12, 14 years old, and this passage was definitely a factor, and we considered adding a balcony in here. Uh, I think you can be grateful for this, uh, Village Youth students. It feels good to have your feet firmly on the ground as I'm teaching you. It's pretty incredible what God does here. Most theologians believe you know, that what happened was he truly died and was brought back to life, not just physically healed of injuries. But personally, I, like, I kind of wish they gave us more of a hint into like Paul's attitude here. Like I think he... He healed him, but I, I don't know if he was, like, happy about it, you know? <laughs> like, brought the kid back to life, yada, yada, whatever, you know? But was he, like, nice to the kid? <laughs> I'm sorry, little buddy. Or was it more like, well, 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 you to kiss, right? Sorry the word of God was too boring for you this evening. You might want to ice your neck, right? I'm not really convinced that this story demands that you make a sermon out of it, right? You can imagine. Do you have balance in your life? You know? Are you hanging on the edge of your faith, Phyllis Church? But if you were hoping for a sermon like that, I, I'd tell you right now, the internet has plenty, plenty of them. I think the more important takeaway here for us is just to see the little details that God's people gathered into the late hours of the night till morning to sit and to learn and to grow. This is radical for us. And we live, we live in an increasingly bite-sized information culture. Very few people are committing themselves to sit at the feet of great teachers for hours upon hours. We have the 10-minute devotions, we have five-minute devotions, we have a, the one-minute Bible. The one-minute Bible came out in 1999. We are due for a 30-second Bible. <laughs> there was a, a study done in 2015 by a company uh, called Microsoft. They're a large company. I'm not sure what they make. I think they make like viruses or something, but they found that the human attention span went from 12 seconds in 2000 to eight seconds by 2015. So right now you're thinking, okay, Dave, that sounds bad, but like where does that rank us, like in the animal kingdom? Well, the human attention span is eight seconds. That puts us right behind nine seconds of the common goldfish. Paul enters a town and he believes this is the best use of our time. We need to know our faith even if it costs us a lot of sleep tonight, even if Eutychus dies for real the next time. Paul says, I need to teach and teach until we are equipped to handle the threats that will come. 
Later in verses 29 and 30, Paul will say to the Ephesian elders, listen, when I leave, wolves will come in and they will teach twisted things. That's why I pour myself out to you. You think I like staying up till midnight? We don't even have electricity. We're using oil lamps. That's why Eutychus is sitting by the window. Little man can barely breathe with all the smoke. This is a story about child endangerment. Many of you have spent time in a room with somebody teaching the Bible or teaching theology who has devoted thousands upon thousands of hours in their life studying the truth of God. You think about it now as Christians, I mean, those men and women who have devoted their lives to this, they will not be alive forever. Who will replace them? Look at the model we find of the Christian disciples. Look at the believers hungry for truth, knowing that we are at war over truth, and that's what Paul wants them to believe, right? And lastly, I just say for the youth kids, I just want to say we love having you here, and I fell asleep many times when I was a kid in church, many times when I was a teenager. I remember the horror of it very well. And I would just say, you don't have to be perfect for God. You just got to be hungry for God one day at a time. And of course, stay away from windows and all that sort of things. But, all right, let's keep going. Verse 13, we got a lot coming. Going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite, opposite Chios. The next day we touched Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So we're getting now to really towards the end of Paul's third missionary journey. He's heading home to Jerusalem. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, verse 17, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know... How I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So all throughout the book of Acts, we see sermons preached to non-believers, and here we see something really unique. Paul is gathering up the, the, the Christian leaders and speaking to them. I think we see a big, kind of the big idea for us this morning is this, that Paul gives us a clear description of the Christian life. And it's this, that many tears, many trials, but always truth. That's Paul's clear description of the Christian life here. Many tears, many trials, always truth. This was the story of Paul, right? He was hunted down continuously. They wanted to trap him with his words and arrest him. They wanted to trap him in crowds and stone him. Look at verse 19. I served the Lord with many tears and many trials. But what else? Always truth. Look at verse 20. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable 
and teaching you in public and house to house. We live in a world that increasingly rejects truth. What is the truth that, that Paul preached that threatened his life for decades of ministry? We see it in verse 21. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the truth that threatened Paul's life over and over. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And 2,000 years later, here we are, and the world still largely rejects these two things. First, the idea that I need to repent, that I could be sinful and unworthy of God. This isn't what most people believe, and it's not what anyone wants to hear. Paul preached it because it's true. We preach it because it's true. Second, a faith in Jesus Christ as Lord Lord is the word there. Many people believe that Jesus existed. Many people believe Jesus was a good dude. He said some good things. Seemed like a pacifist. That's pretty chill. Walked around carrying small lambs on his shoulders. I'm cool with that. Seems like maybe he's from Portland. I like him. (laughs) But the reality of the world is that Jesus is Lord. That Christ sits on the throne. The message of the gospel is, do you accept the lordship of Christ? My feelings don't sit on the throne. My opinions of right and wrong do not sit on the throne. My ideas for how things should be do not sit on the throne. Repent and believe that Jesus is Lord. And so Paul gathers up the church leaders as he finishes a third journey devoted to the truth of God, and they get to receive this wisdom from him as we do today. And it's a simple message. There will be many tears, there will be many trials, but there will be always truth. And he continues, look at verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And the second thing we see clearly this morning is that a life devoted to the truth will not rescue you from the trials and the tears. Living for the gospel is not an escape route from the pain of this world. God gives you the truth and then God keeps you in the fight of it. I think it's easy for Christians to say, yeah, yeah, I'm committed to following Christ and I'm committed to the truth and I know that it won't be easy and yet when things get hard, you get that voice in your head it says man did I do something wrong (laughs) how can this be happening we want to be willing to face struggles but deep in our flesh there's there's a part of us that has an expectation that our obedience to God should maybe just earn us some better days what is the example of Paul here many trials many tears 
always truth. Keep pressing on. The Holy Spirit has told me that in every city, imprisonment and affliction awaits me. Next week in chapter 21, we're going to see the prophecy of Agabus walking up to Paul and telling him, you're going to Jerusalem. Imprisonment awaits you in Jerusalem. You can imagine one of Paul's companions saying, all right, Mr. Paul, <laughs> sounds like the Spirit of God had you heading east, so I've just you know, crunched the numbers here. Looks like if you go north, you're good. If you go south or west, you're all clear. If you go east, you're certainly going to prison. And Paul says, okay, so prison it is, little buddy, all right? You could put your little map away. <laughs> the plan is east. We stick to the plan. Trials and tears await behind this door, and yet this is not a closed door. It's very clear. We've seen what a closed door looks like in Acts, right? I mean, all throughout Acts, we see the Holy Spirit did not allow us to enter. We planned to go this way. The Spirit told us to go this way. And now here we see the Spirit has promised that I would suffer in these places, and here I go to these places. Only the Spirit of God can lead us joyfully into suffering. A lot of things can lead us into suffering. Only the Spirit of God can lead us joyfully into suffering. And this is the Paul who says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's a cool phrase. <laughs> but is it true? I think he does imitate Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Paul imitates the joy of Christ in heading toward suffering because he knows that God is at work in every trial and in every tear for our good, for our joy, for God's glory. And one day we can look back on our life and speak with confidence that we did not back down from the gospel. That is the ultimate aim for us, right? That's how Paul feels. Look at the very next verse. Verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul says, take an account of my life. Did I not use every opportunity to declare truth? Did I not weigh the cost of the trials and the tears and then choose to carry on carrying truth into a hostile world. Village Church, there will be so many opportunities in the days ahead to shrink back from the gospel. There will be so many opportunities in the days ahead to pull back a bit to avoid some pain, to maintain all of your relationships, to not risk your career and your income. Youth students, college students, there will be many opportunities in the days ahead to abandon what you know is true, 
to do what you know is wrong so you can avoid some pain, so you can chase after some pleasure, or so you can just keep everyone happy with you. But if you persevere in your commitment to speaking and obeying truth in this world, as hard as it may be, even if it feels like some days you're walking into the fire, you will not regret it. Amen? Look at verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to, ra- to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul says, let me tell you what's going to happen. There will be an assault on the truth and this happened all throughout church history. And let me just say, 2,000 years later, we're facing the same things. The assault on the truth of the gospel comes from the outside of the church. It can rise up from the inside of the church. People will say twisted things. And Paul gives us a model for how you battle against this. Look at verse 31. I think the answer is very simple. Continuous teaching. This word admonish, in the Greek you could translate to rebuke, to warn, to instruct, to teach proper behavior and belief. Three years, night and day, I admonished everyone. If you want to be a church that stays focused on the gospel, that's filled with the Spirit and on mission together, we've got to be a people who are devoted to continuously speaking truth to each other. As leaders, but ultimately as, as everyone in the church. Let's take a look at our own culture today. I mean, what do we see today? We see a, a world that is at war with the truth of God, as it has always been. But of course, every day there's something new. When you turn on the TV, there's going to be something, some new take on it. <laughs> The big one right now, you turn on the TV right now, we're seeing millions of children grow up in chaos and confusion of a culture that rejects the most simple realities of God's creation on topics like gender and sexuality. We see a world that declares the supremacy of the self, that there is no God on the throne, there's no truth that sits above my truth and my feelings and my experiences and my reality. This way of thinking can only lead to destruction. And so for us as a church, what's the answer to this? What's the plan? (laughs) I don't know. But we show up this morning, we open up God's word and we say, God is on the throne. Not you, not me. And God's redeemed us on the cross. We have a hope in heaven. We have nothing to earn. And so we admonish one another to stay in the fight. Amen? Yeah. Let's keep going. Look at verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And so the Spirit gives Paul this supernatural insight that he would not see these people again. And this would prove to be true in the days ahead. As we kind of wrap up this morning, I was just thinking, man, this month, I think I'm feeling like a lot of you and just feel like I've just been drowning in information from the start of this year. There's just a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of things to know about in the world. I'll stay up late at night reading stories from the war in Ukraine, reading stories of the suffering there, reading updates from pastors who are on the ground there and serving the people and turn on the news and they're saying, you know, gas prices are going to keep keep going up. Why don't you have a Tesla, you lazy peasant? And, and now you should stock up on food. It's like, I'm sorry, what? I mean, the Apostle Paul is a good example for us of how to be surrounded by constant danger, constant unknowns, and yet continually bringing his mind back to that which is unchangeable, right? I think another thing for us this morning is that the example we receive from Paul is that the Christian mind must continually be brought back to gaze upon what is constant and unchangeable. Our minds can wander, we take in information, but ultimately our minds must be brought back to gaze upon what is constant and unchangeable. I find myself needing to read more. I need to watch more. I want, to, I want to understand it all. I want to grasp it all. I always need to have a feeling of what's coming in the future. I need my game plan. I need a backup plan. I need an exit strategy for every scenario that might unfold, that might threaten the comforts of my world. And I think meanwhile, God's just saying, <laughs> when are you going to just bring your worried mind to me and rest? There's a lot of unknowns in this world right now. I think a big question is, what are you going to do about it, church? What are we going to do? Are we going to build a bunker? Board up the walls? Hang out here? Put some snipers on the roof? Sounds cool. What's the example we see in the life of Paul when things are looking dark? You go back not too many chapters. Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are arrested, they're shackled in a prison cell, they're waiting to find out, are we going to have our heads chopped off in the morning? What does it say? Chapter 16, they stayed up all night, they were picking the lock, they were mapping out an escape tunnel, they started digging. That was a paraphrase, but I brought the real passage. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Sorry. Wrong translation. 
see all throughout Scripture, God's people sing to their God as he leads us through green pastures, as he leads us besides quiet waters. God's people sing to their God as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. God's people sing in the calm. God's people sing in the storms. Because it has nothing to do with the changing storms. It has everything to do with the unchanging God. And he is worthy of trust and he is worthy of praise in equal measure today and the next day. Amen? And you know what? Quite honestly, most of our plans are worthless anyway. We are far better off just singing. (laughs) Some of you are not very good at singing and you're still better off. I want to finish with one, one more story. In the 19th century, which is how we say 1800s, and it's annoying, right? <laughs> there was a Scottish missionary named John Patton. He wanted to travel to the island of Tana, and he wanted to preach to the natives there. They never heard the gospel after almost 2,000 years. The natives of this island were often kidnapped and taken to New Zealand to work as slaves. He wanted to to preach the gospel to them. He wanted to minister to them and educate them and teach them to make their own goods and start businesses. He wanted to translate the New Testament into their language so they would know Christ. And there was this one small problem that came up along the way, and that was that they were cannibals. And in 1824, the first two Christian missionaries who attempted to evangelize these people on these islands, well, they stepped off their boat, and within minutes, they were killed and they were eaten. And knowing all of the danger, John Patton was still determined to live among these people and preach the gospel to them, and that's just what he did. And there's all sorts of details about his life and ministry and devoting himself to these people and caring for the sick and starting orphanages on the islands and translating the scriptures. My favorite story goes back to the beginning when John Patton was making his argument to a group of elders from his church for why he should go and dedicate his life to these people. And so I'm put it up on the screen. This is how he explains the story. One dear old Christian gentleman repeatedly exhorted me The cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. At last I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is to soon be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. (laughs) Mr. Dixon, you're pretty old yourself. (laughs) Whether it's the Apostle Paul or John Patton or anyone in this room, the question's really simple. Do you believe that you will regret a life devoted to truth, even if it brings with it many trials and many tears and how many trials and how many tears will cause you to say 
this is not worth it. By God's grace, may we have the strength like Paul and like so many Christians before us to say, there's no limit. (laughs) We belong to Christ. Where else would we go? Later, John Patton would reflect on his own life and ministry, and this is what he said. He said, whatever trials have befallen me in my earthly pilgrimage, I've never had the trial of doubting that perhaps, after all, Jesus had made some mistake. No. My blessed Lord Jesus makes no mistakes. When we see all his meaning, we shall then understand what now we can only trustfully believe, that all is well. It is best for us, best for the cause most dear to us, best for the good of others, and the glory of God. (laughs) Village Church, whatever you face today, you should know that God doesn't make mistakes. And so you can embrace trials, you can embrace tears, you can cling to the truth, and one day we will see that this was God's best for us. And it was best for the glory of God. Amen? Let me pray with me, Village Church. God, we're just humbled to open up your word this morning as your people, and we're a people that face many things. We're a people who who look to you and look to the truth of the gospel as our hope, and God, may you strengthen us by your spirit, and as we think about the things that we face, and knowing that we are not all-powerful. We don't have the strength to face many things that we face. And, and yet you are with us, God. And God, I ask that you would give peace to this church and that we would be encouraged as we look upon the life of Paul and the life of so many before us who to their very last day believed that this is worth it. And so, God, may you shape us to be a church that believes deeply that you are worth it, God. May we worship you as you deserve. Most of all, God, we just love that we're your people. You've called us to yourself that we have nothing to earn from you, that we live all of this out of the grace and the mercy that you've shown us. May the world see that in us. We just delight in you, God, and we worship you as you deserve. Amen.